Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up earlier today with Dan Wilton, CEO of First Mining Gold. They are listed on the TSX fee. We caught up with them last uh, March, and we talk about some of the things that they've managed to achieve in 2020, uh, their PFS, which came out today, and plans for this year and the optionality around the cash that they've got in the bank. If you want our thoughts and opinions on the conversation, their plans, the PFS, or indeed the company, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. We can also find detailed company reports. There's commentary from experts from around the world on a variety of companies and commodities. There's also training courses on there to help you with your own diligence process. We've gotten summaries of other interviews that we've done just to save you some time. Of course, there's a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a nice, safe environment, free from trolling, abuse, or judgment. Isn't that nice? So try that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Dan, how are you doing, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Great to see you again. That's the, that's the, it's been a long time. <laughs> I was about to say, long time, long time. Yeah, uh, I think we we're March last year, the beginning of yeah. March last year. We hadn't got a clue what was coming down the line. Not a clue. Just a just a different world. I think I'd just come back from the beach, and uh, you know, we're on our way to PDAC. Where if you remember the days when thirty thousand people could gather and shake hands, it's, never. Again. Uh, it seems like a lifetime ago. Never again. Anyway. Never again. Yeah, you come back from Miami, if I if I if I recollect. But so things have obviously yep. changed a lot. Um, we're going to talk about well your company, but also the pre fees uh, that's just come out as well, and maybe talk about some of the other assets. But how's life changed for you, working wise? Uh, yeah, you know it's been it's been an extremely busy year, and obviously stressful for all of us. But I think kind of coming into the pandemic, um, we were lucky that we just raised a little bit of money in February and early March. So we didn't have to panic. We were able to kind of, you know, keep people focused for a period of time, but it, it really sharpened our focus on what we needed to do. Nothing sharpens your focus, like not being able to leave your house. So, uh, you know, we got really busy April, May and June and ended up announcing a few really important kind of transformational transactions uh, for the company, including selling our gold loan project to Treasury Metals. We're now a 40% shareholder there. We'd, uh, we'd option our Pickle Crow project to a great partner, yeah. Ateco Minerals. Uh, they've got a 45,000 meter drill program out and had some, hit some amazing results at Pickle Crow this week. So, you know, we're very mm. excited. They're moving that forward. And, uh, you know, we raised a, a bunch of money uh, by partnering with First Majestic on a silver stream, which really gave us that confidence. And we talked about this last year. You know, we needed to simplify the portfolio and give ourselves that runway of long-term funding it gives people confidence you're going to get to the finish line. And yeah. so it kind of did all of those in the middle of a pandemic when we couldn't leave our house. Yeah, yeah. So you you definitely took advantage of the of the situation. Yeah, I mean, I do want to talk about those things because um, that's my memory when I was doing the research uh, for today was, you know, looking back at the conversation we had, it, there were a lot of moving parts, not necessarily a lot of cash. And I guess the market wasn't really kind of understanding the story and there was a bit of focus required. And I think... I think we're going to hear you've ticked off a lot of boxes, but hey, a lot of new people uh, have joined us since we last spoke. 60, you know, sixty thousand subscribers now. That's uh, so it's been a bit nuts. 
but there's also a lot of new generalist investors coming in here. So why don't you kick off, give us a one minute overview of the business. What are you? Uh, not necessarily the sales pitch. Uh, and then I'll pick it up from there and we can go through some of these uh, points you want to talk about today. Absolutely. Well, First Mining Gold is a gold project developer with a core portfolio of assets in Canada, really centered around our Spring Pole project, which is one of the largest undeveloped uh, open pit gold projects in North America. And we just announced pre-feasibility study results on Spring Pole this morning. So we're very excited about that, declared reserves for the first time. Uh, and then the balance of the portfolio, like I said, we've got some strategic investments. Um, we have our Cameron project, Hope Brook and, and our assets in Quebec kind of round out our Canadian portfolio. Um, but really our, our real focus and where we're going to see the most value is advancing Spring Pole through the environmental assessment process. Okay. Getting it permitted. Totally agree. Okay, great, great, great summary. So for people new to this, you're, you're Canadian focus developer. Uh, you're focused on Spring Pole. Um, you well, as you mentioned, you did a deal with First Majestic uh, on a silver uh, stream there. Um, talk through the highlights, what you think the highlights are of the pre-fees and what we should be focusing on. Uh, well, you know, lots of highlights that come out of this. These things are a result of an enormous amount of work, um, you know, from fundamental data collection to analysis and really thoughtful engineering from all of our partners that were involved in this. Um, but the, the real highlights are this is a project at long-term consensus gold prices of $1,600 uh, that shows just shy of a billion dollars US NPV after tax. Uh, that number pre-tax is 1.5 billion. Um, after tax IRR of 29%. And importantly, this is one of few projects in the world that is capable of producing in excess of 300,000 ounces a year in the core part of its mine life, because uh, you kind of mine for nine years and then process some lower grade stockpiles at the back end of the mine life. But in the, in the core part of its life, all in sustaining costs, sub $600 is how it's scoped. We're putting it in the lowest quartile of the cost curve in a tier one jurisdiction, um, you know, and trading at values that are a fraction of the values of other developers out there. So we think it's a really, really compelling story. And importantly, you know, we made some really important additions to our team that I think can give our investors comfort that, you know, we have the people to be able to take the project through this EA process. And we're very well funded to get to that finish line. Fantastic. Okay. It's, an, it's a nice looking uh, PFS. Um, it, I'm hoping it uh, gets people at least looking at you because an ASIC like that, say, wherever you are in the world, that's a good number. Right. Yeah. Um, and the NPVs are quite attractive. But with that comes some problems, right? Because yeah. it's a big number. It's going to require a big CapEx number. So should we just go through some of the things that you're, you've got to be looking at now to move things forward? Okay. So pre fees sure. need to move on to feasibility study. You, you're you going to need some cash. So talk, talk through your cash position at the moment. I think you've indicated you've got a, you've got a bunch of it. Yeah, we've it? got about thirty. We got about thirty-five million on the balance sheet today. Uh, with this announcement, we actually get another seven and a half US from First Majestic under our Silverstream uh, transaction. Um, we've still got uh, a number of First Majestic shares that we haven't sold yet from uh, the first tranche of that Silverstream transaction. So, kind of cash and marketable securities, call it. It's kind of between 50 and 60 million right now. So we're very well funded from that perspective. And then we have these strategic investments that 
over the longer term, if we needed to find liquidity, no hurry to do it now, but over the longer term provides that flexibility because the value of our, of our stake in uh, the Pickle Crow project, the value of our shares in treasury metals combined is about $135, $140 million right now when you actually look through at how those companies are trading. So we think we leverage some of that value to make sure that we have the financial flexibility to move the project forward in an appropriate way. Right, okay. So you've got some optionality on, on the cash side in terms of how you tackle it and the period of period over which that cash could come in and obviously yeah. say you could leverage it now. Um, so that's great. One thing you can't, you, you, you can't control so much is the EIS component. So what's happening there? Because no one's going to walk in and buy this thing off you unless that's nailed down. Yes, uh, so I think that's, you know, we're working very hard. And the most important thing we've done is added really significantly to our team on that front. So we had hired uh, Steve Lines, who joined us in December as our new VP Environment and Community Relations. And Steve, prior to this, had spent six years permitting uh, the Hard Rock Project, Greenstone Gold Mines. You know, Hard Rock just sold to Orion and, uh, and ultimately Premier to Equinox in order to develop that project at a value that would be multiples of what Springpole is valued to uh, add inside first mining. So it gives us some real sense of where we can see some value lift. But more importantly, you know, it's amazing. When I started here two years ago, every investor said, why do we need another one gram ore body in Ontario, right? Like, uh, we've just had Rainy River. It's such a problem. No one's ever going to build Cote. No one's going to build Hard Rock. No one's going to build Magino. Well, lo and behold, fast forward to today, two of those projects, Cote Magino in construction and Hard Rock's been bought for a value of about 600 million US and going into construction. So I think it, you know, it really demonstrates that if we move this project forward, that value is going to come. And we now have a team, and I think a team with really fresh, recent experience in permitting projects like this in the same jurisdiction, relationships with the regulators, a real understanding of how we find win-win collaboration with our communities. Uh, and that's a really important part of what has to happen moving forward. Um, but yeah, timeframes are the one thing that if you look at what's been impacted by COVID particularly, and absolutely understandably, our communities have had a number of other priorities, particularly the health and safety of their community members, um, and getting where we would normally do consultation with community meetings and presentations in community halls. We haven't been able to do that over the past year, but we, you know, we need to be patient and we have to ask our investors to hopefully be a bit patient to walk with us through that journey is we, we need our communities to have the time and capacity to be able to work on what I think is going to be really beneficial, mutually beneficial. Okay, so that, dead, that deadline's going back, but what's it going back to? Give, give us an idea of when you hope to submit and how long you think you're going to have to wait. Yeah, so listen, you got to keep in mind, we've done 10 years of environmental baseline work on this project in aquatic and terrestrial habitat. We collected a lot of really important data around, you know, waste rock and tailings characterization, um, but informed how we have moved the project forward in scoping. You know, we removed the tailings dam, for example. We've scoped dry stack tails and waste co-disposal in this PFS, which is, I think, a really exciting change. Shrunk the footprint considerably. Um, but I think that the goal is we would like to be able to have the project sufficiently scoped with the input from our community so that everyone's on the same page about what's going in by the end of the year. 
Um, but there's a lot of work for us to do by then. And then that kind of starts uh, the process in Ontario with submission of an environmental assessment document, Ontario and federally, which uh, for other projects has taken kind of 18 to 24 months. So that puts us in kind of a end of 2023, beginning of 2024 timeframe for decisions. Right. Okay. Now, if I remember where you guys came from, maybe again, before your time, uh, admittedly, most of this, so it was more seen as a kind of promotional type endeavor. It was a portfolio builder and it perhaps wasn't taken. Well, it has some initial success and then fell away quite quickly, right? So you're, you've been brought on board to change this into more about the fundamentals of mining and prove that you're a mining business. Sounds like you can tick that box. I think people will, will take note after this PFS. But again, you still got a long way to go. So what are the things that, well, tell me, what is the end game on this? Are you guys going to become developers? So uh, sorry, the end producers, game, I should say. Producers. Well, first, first and foremost, uh, I think we have a very good understanding of what we need to do to take risk out of the business and surface value, right? And that's getting this thing through the process. And when we get to that point, and we have the luxury of the decision and the capability to move it forward to decide if you can raise finance and build the project, if you find a partner to help you build the project. I think it all comes down to what's the environment at the time, um, what's in the best interest of the shareholders. And, you know, my, with my background as a corporate finance professional and as a, uh, and as a private equity investor, I know there are a number of different ways that that can go forward successfully, whether it's as an independent uh, company or as a part of a bigger company. So I don't think we're bringing any preconceived notions in. Um, but I think what I would say is that, you know, we need to assess that at the time. And we're now very well resourced from a human capital and financial capital perspective to get us to that luxury of having to make that decision. Uh, and that means, you know, in the next few years, it's continued de-risking and project optimization as you uh, go through the environmental assessment process, get a feasibility study done. You know, you don't want to do three feasibility studies. So you probably have it line up with once you've really got that project scoped and in the EA process and everything, everyone's made the decision that this is what the project's going to look like. Um, but, you know, we've had great partnership from uh, a number of our technical partners in moving this project forward. Uh, so, yeah, I think we're in a very good position. Well, I think, yeah, I think you're, well, you're, you've got the luxury because of how things have moved in 2020 and your cash position of not telling us what the plans are. And you've, you've got, and, and, you know, as long as the share price keeps going up, you, you, you'll have that. But at some point, you, the market does like a bit of clarity about what you are because you haven't got, you know, mind builders in-house. You haven't got a track record of, you know, producing. So therefore, people's expectations are yeah, you're building this thing up for sale. And that's the expectation of the market. If I look at the, some of the questions sent in, then the questions are, you know, what is your timing around that? And what are the deliverables between now and, and that, that moment in time? Can you answer that? Uh, well, the timing on that, again, I think it comes down to how do we take the most risk out of this business over the ensuing, you know, two or three years? And I think you need to um, you need to be open to and exploring those partnership opportunities all the way along. Right now, I would say with the value that we have in Springpool, we don't need to go get any external funding to move it forward. This is not a super compelling value at which you know uh, you'd want to sell a project or necessarily even bring a partner in. But that can change quickly, and part of part of that is perception. 
and we continue, the project continues to face this perception of it's sitting, you know, deposit sits under the shallow bay of a lake and you'll never get permits for it. Well, as it turns out, uh, our, my colleague Steve Lyons has permitted projects both as a regulator and as a project proponent in the Northwest Territories that had smaller footprints and less water disturbance than Springpole. There's nothing unique about what we're doing. So Steve brings this real clarity of precedent and, and you know, understanding of and relationship with those regulators to, to allow us to take that risk out of the project. So in the end, listen, if we get to the point where we can build it, you can, you can find a mind building team. We've got great partners that have worked with us. Um, but that's something that you just have to assess what's in the best interest of the shareholders at the time. Okay. I, I'm, 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 trying, I'm trying to understand, understand what are you going to be able to say, which is going to change people's minds enough to get that valuation to move? Because again, if, if, I, you know, if I look at your, your PowerPoint, I think you've, you've referred to it, the fact that, you know, you're what, 14 bucks an ounce compared to, you know, a lot of, a lot of your peers, but you're, you're trading way, way off of some of those comps because people don't get what you're trying to do yet, I suspect. So what what are the messages that you, you okay, PFS, good start, right? You're gonna have to deliver a feasibility study. What, how long does that take? Well, feasibility study, I mean, this year we will spend doing more optimization and kind of trade-off work. I think the feasibility study, you'd likely start at the end of the year and have that progress so that it's in, um, you know, a degree of, readiness for as you're kind of rounding the corner at the end of the environmental assessment process, because that's when you really need it, right? You need it uh, and bring, you know, financing partners along with you, you know, based on a pre-feasibility study, but ultimately, you know, they come along the journey of the feasibility study with independent engineers. And that's, you know, we have the luxury of time as we move that forward. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of the time frame. It all happens in parallel with the environmental assessment process that we're going through. But it's really important that you get community buy-in and you get a lot of that work done upfront, right? Um, and that's where, you know, I think you can invest time in the front end to make sure that uh, you are saving much more time on the back end of a process if you have real partnerships and people bought into it. Right. So what else do you think you need to do to kind of get shareholder interest? And what's your split in terms of, you know, institutional versus the most slightly, you know, I, you know, I think the re retail uh, audience are not quite there yet with you. Certainly that's what we're, we're, we're seeing. So, yeah, I think, you know, you alluded to it before. I think they were at one point and, and uh, now we, listen, we have, we have a huge retail shareholding. And a lot of really dedicated, you know, retail and high net worth shareholders who are very supportive and very active and great evangelists for us. It's it's wonderful. Our institutional shareholding base has grown from, you know, almost zero to kind of 15 percent, 16 percent over the last uh, year to 18 months. Um, and I think that's something where as we demonstrate that this is a real project, as we demonstrate that this is something that we believe we're going to be able to get permitted as we demonstrate in the milestones that we're making progress and that we have, we're financed and have the capability to get the project to those critical value milestones, that's, that's when people have to believe. And ultimately, listen, there's going to be a big portion of the investing public that's going to say, you're never going to get that permit. I'm not going to buy the stock until you have the permit. So how do you change their mind? You get the permit. That's, and you have to be prepared to play that long game. But I think if you look in the history of, 
of uh, development companies that have gone down a permitting process, it's very rare that it's a binary move, right? As you take risk out of the project and achieve milestones in a permitting process, people tend to believe it more as you, you know, there's not real objection to it and you've done good science and scoped a really good project, then I think you should be able to see that value start accreting. And right now we're still trading at the, I, I don't even want to listen to the story. <laughs> you know, level. And I think declaring reserves in a pre-feasibility study is a pretty good start to be able to convince people that, you know, this is a project that they need to pay attention to. Because when you scope Springpole against just about any other development project in the world of a comparable size and scale, like there's just not that many of them. So, uh, and I think it compares really well. So yeah, we're, we're excited about it, but uh, yeah, I think I, I, I would like to think that you put the PFS out and all of a sudden everyone believes you, but I know it's a longer road than that. And the good news is we're well-funded and not going to need to raise capital pretty much all the way along that road based on our, our plans right now. Okay. So coming back, because like I said, I think you've done a lot of the things right, but if you look at the EIS process, let's say you submit at the end of this year, you've got what, 12 to 24 months time frame yeah, after 20, that. yeah say 18 to 24 in ontario right. has been a you know kind of the the benchmark for other projects okay so you're three years out from delivering certainty around the permitting and i get that there's a big audience that said yeah i'd be one of them to be honest i've been caught out with it so i'm definitely one of them i'd go i'm not putting any money down till, till that moment there's a whole bunch of other stuff that you can do to remove risk though again which just makes it in terms of baby steps towards um making it more palatable so what, what are the things, what are the other things which you think actually this may give just a little bit of comfort to people during that three-year hiatus? Well, I think first and foremost, it's, uh, it's moving forward in a positive and constructive uh, fashion with our Indigenous and our local communities. And the fact that if we, you know, get to a point and certainly the perspective that we're bringing into our discussions where, you know, we establish real partnership, I think it's the only way that it's going to work. And, um, you know, we all uh, we're all learning as we go through this to a degree, but I think there is real intention on all sides of our communities to really work in partnership. So, um, you know, there's still lots of discussions to happen there. Um, and we're, you know, we're at the early stages of collecting community input into the project because it hasn't, you know, uh, prior to the last, you know, 12 to 18 months, it's never really been moving forward before it's been kind of promoted right and we're now at a point with the with the financial capability and I think the team uh, to be able to move that forward seriously so I, I think it, it, and there's there's a lot of steps we can take along the way with our communities being collaboration agreements and um, you know it doesn't have to be a signed impact benefits agreement as long as we're being good partners and and helping move it forward, understanding what the communities would like to see. I think that's a really important step. Okay, given, given the scale of this project, 300,000 ounces a year, 11 year life of mine, ASIC below, well below 600 bucks Canadian. It's very attractive to some of these big companies who are looking to fill up their reserves, right? Is there any benefit in you you know, starting an early strategic relationship with any of those kind of mid-tier and above players because in the sense that could they speed up or help your EIS process because of their track record? 
I think that there is certainly benefit to it. I think there's benefit to the operating experience. You know, I think there's benefit to um, to groups that are operating in our region in Ontario that, you know, it could be helpful. Um, you know, every, uh, and I've been a corporate finance guy for most of my career and done a lot of, you know, investments and site visits and things like that. Every one of those is an opportunity for us to get someone else's perspective on the project and what they might do differently, what they like, what they don't like. Um, you know, I think there's, yeah, there is real, uh, there's, I think a real opportunity. And one of the things that could potentially change people's minds about the executability of the project is an external stamp of validation. Right. And I think, uh, if you can ultimately get that through some kind of partnership, whether it's an investment in the project investment in the company, I think that's worth considering because I think that brings a different sense of the scale of risk that you're not facing alone anymore. And we've seen that a number of other companies do. It's had really impactful and significant uh, impacts on share price and on perception of risk. So I, I think I think from that perspective, it's worth considering. Right. And that would be something that you would have to consider before you submitted the EIS, one presumes, to get their input. Um, no, not necessarily. I mean, it's, you know, I think if we're doing work that should withstand the scrutiny and be to the level of quality that uh, any potential partner is going to be comfortable with. And that's the team that we've built around us. That's our internal team. That's our team of partners and consultants who've helped us uh, move the project forward here. Um, and yeah, I, I think there's been really good work done and I think it, it will absolutely withstand scrutiny, but that's a, that's a perspective. And, you know, maybe I bring a bit of a different perspective, having been a private equity investor, having been a corporate finance professional for years, um, you know, it's one of the reasons we brought Ken Enquist onto the team in 2019. Ken knows how to scope projects in a way that withstands the scrutiny of, of the pickiest of potential partners. It's because Ken kind of grew up inside Rio Tinto doing big projects. And so he knows, uh, he knows how those things go. So it's been instrumental in delivering what this, what I think is a really, really positive result in our PFS. No, I've, I've been impressed with some of the people you've brought on. I mean, that's one of the things that stuck out for me um, from when we last spoke. You've, mm. you've thought about who you would need to solve problems. And, I, and that's, that's actually very attractive. Um, okay, should we, should we park Springbok? Because I think, th I, you know, comment earlier about, you know, are people interested in one gram per ton type project? I think, you know, that, that question has been well answered. Multiple interviews that we've done across the year, I, I think it's 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 irrelevant. This is, this is about the margin that you this if the economics continue and you get it over the line with ghost permitting, it, it's it's a very very solid attractive project. Can we can we just talk about some things, the other things that you've done again because this sort of interested sure. me. Um, when we talked last, I said it's at the upfront, but it's it, it was true because when I was looking at the the videos, like we talked about some of the outliers, some of the things which just were distracting from spring pole, but needed sorting. And you've gone through yeah. it. I think you'd just done the um, Oteco deal. It was there, there yeah, about when, right. when we spoke, yep. right? Uh, yeah, we'd announced it hadn't quite closed it yet. Right, so exactly. That timing, yeah. Right? yeah. So th that that looks like it's going well. You can tell me about that in a second. Also, Treasury Metals is, was another big piece of this. I know you've, you've now got effectively 40% of, 
of treasury metals. So that's also quite attractive. Albeit both of those things are, you know, f- financially beneficial at some point down the line, but that's fine because you've got cash today. So how are those relationships going? Are they working out as planned? Yeah, I'd say better than expected. You know, there's been, um, uh, having brought in the, our partners at Ateco who have a real, you know, it's basically the original team was Steve Parsons and Sam Brooks, who Bellevue. are the, the group yeah. behind Bellevue. Yeah. Um, so a real demonstrated track record of finding high grade gold in old past producing gold camps, right? And so it was the deal with Ateco was always more about the partner than it was about the structure of the deal, which is why that deal came together so well. Um, and them having the confidence of being able to raise the capital to really do justice to what needed to happen at Pickle Crow, because all the owners of Pickle Crow going back to you know 2000 and before never had the financial capability to do a proper job of it. But if you look at, you know, Ateco's raised $37 million um, to execute our $10 million earn-in, of which uh, the phase one of $5 million, they should be through shortly, like this month, hopefully. And they're in the middle of a 45,000-meter drill program and putting out some phenomenal results, which we always knew the gold was there to be found. But you need someone who's got a real capability of, um, understanding and reinterpreting high-grade systems. And that's what these guys have done very well. So, no, the partnership's been great, open, transparent, collaborative. Um, and, you know, we're, we're in a really interesting position there because we have a 20% interest in Pickle Crow that's carried through to a construction decision. Yeah, I yeah, remember. Yeah. So they're going to have to do a feasibility study and more or less have the financing lined up before they do that. On a high grade mine, which you know they have to drill that to reserves, is is going to take a lot of capital. So we're you know we're in essence kind of getting a free ride for a period, um, but you know we consciously did that, banking on the team who's there and what we think is really going to be the success of the operation. And so far, it's working out great. Yep. So Steve, Steve Parsons, uh, good good guy, and they've gone hard early as, as well. So yes. again, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, exactly. Treasury, obviously, you've, they've, they've kind of come back in and you, you've kind of, um, they've now got Goliath and Goldland as yeah. part of that, that transaction. Why did you do that? So listen, we did that because first and foremost, those projects are worth more together than they are apart. Two deposits 25 kilometers away, um, you know, you shouldn't build two mills. That's just capital efficiency and common sense. Um uh, second, we were really getting no value for Goldline. I would have talked about this last year. You know, we put out 100, and, 100 meters of two grams from surface in drill holes in a new discovery, and our, and our share price didn't move a you know a penny. Whereas this at least takes Goldline and defines it in something where now when people say what's the value of your interest, it's like what's well, Treasury shares times share price. You know, plus these really attractive warrants that we have. So it's kind of getting that transparency of it. But importantly, listen, Goldland Goliath was going to need capital to move forward. And it's going to need a dedicated team to move forward because, you know, with their uh, EA approvals already at Goliath, um, they have an ability to move a bit more quickly than we would have at Springpole. And rather, so look at two options, you know, we buy them, they buy Goldland. And when you think about that, the issue was the relative values at the time really made the most sense if we didn't dilute our shareholders of their value of Springpole, because, you know, we really believe Springpole was going to 
turn up with values like this that we have in this pre-feasibility study. So if you really believe that, you got to begrudge every share that you issue at values much lower than that. So it's been great. Put them together. Some great scoping work's gone on. Uh, hired a new CEO. So I'm on the board of Treasury. We have three of seven directors. So we've had a bit of a board refresh. And I think we've got a great complement of directors. Um, combination of the existing directors of Treasury and a couple of people that we brought on. And um, a new CEO, Jeremy Wyeth, who's doing an amazing job. And Jeremy has a great background of mine building in Ontario from his time at De Beers, where he built the Victor Mine. Um, a great track record of building win-win relationships with the communities around which they operate in Ontario, which I think is super helpful. But they're coming out with their own kind of first real peek at the what the economics, potential economics of a potential combined gold on Goliath will look like. And I think it's going to, it's going to be pretty compelling would be my sense. Um, you know, we've always kind of thought one plus one equals three with this deposit. So, yeah, well, and I think both of those, both treasury metals and attacker solid management teams. Do you know what I mean? You yeah. sort of see companies like yourselves with portfolio approach and you're like, oh, let's do a farm out and will anyone, the first person that comes along with the promise of money and it just kind of sits there and, and doesn't do much for years. I mean, when you've been in corporate finance, you've seen that a few times. Um, it's nice to sort of see how aggressively they're both tackling that. Um, again, just sort of dealing with some of the other kind of outlier type things. We, uh, Cameron, I noticed that you're kind of, you, you kind of take the, you've taken the opportunity to uh, grab a little bit more land there, but are you doing anything on that or is that still a little bit? Yeah, we're, no, we're very actively scoping an exploration program at Cameron. Uh, before we do that, we need to advance some uh, agreements with our, local and indigenous communities uh, in the area, but have had some really constructive discussions there. Um, and with this new larger land package, there's a couple of really interesting opportunities of kind of the age old story. There's a deposit on our side of the property. There's a deposit on their side of the property and there's no drilling in between them, right? Because it goes up to the property line. So I think for us to look at, you know, some what could be some really interesting regional exploration outside of the, the main camera deposit. We don't I don't think we include any of the other projects as as uh, resources right now. So I think there's an opportunity to add some reasonably attractive, probably upfront smaller, but, you know, nearer surface resources at Cameron and think about how it ultimately comes together as a project, be that processing as it is, or be that ultimately, you know, you've got what I think are going to be two mills, uh, treasury, treasury advances from Cameron to the treasury mill site by roads is about a hundred kilometers. Uh, Cameron to Rainy River is about 90 kilometers, a little bit less than 90 kilometers. So, you know, there's, I think this resource, as we define it, demonstrate more exploration potential because it's, there's, there's a ton of gold there that really is begging some drill holes. So we're going to scope and then uh, hopefully execute, you know, two or $3 million drill program this year and, and a bunch of regional work to work up more targets and some really, really interesting uh, structural targets that have never been drill tested. But, so perfect. It's I, exciting. I, I did want to talk about drilling um, separately, but um, just let me finish off on the thing. So um, Hope, Hope, Creek, Hope Brook, uh, we talked Hope about Brook. last time, that is what a deal to waiting to be done. Or are you just going to let that sit for a while? Yeah, uh, you know, I think um, when we look at the portfolio, Hope Brook does kind of sit geographically as a bit of an outlier. Um, 
It's a great project in what is now one of the hottest jurisdictions in North America for drilling, right? You look at the number of people who are picking up exploration projects in Newfoundland. The difference between ours and theirs is that ours already has a million ounce resource on it. And it was mined for eight years. and It's got a power line to it. And it's on tidewater, right? Like, there's so many advantages to the Hope Brook site. So, but it's one of those things that for us, as we look at the other opportunities, are we going to spend money drilling at Cameron? Are we going to spend money drilling at Springpole where, you know, that exploration success beside where you've got a $995 million NPV? Um, that can be really interesting. And the reality is Springpole, we've, you know, we've not really talked about the exploration upside, but Springpole sits on the edge of this Birchucci Greenstone belt, which the way that we talk about it is if Red Lake, the Red Lake camp has seen a dollar of exploration. Um, the Pickle Lake camp's probably seen 10 cents and the Birchucci's probably seen a penny, right? Like it's really underexplored, but very similar rocks to all of those. Four or five past producing, you know, from, from the 30s and 40s, past producing high-grade mines in the area. Really interesting geology. And I think there's a real opportunity for us and not just us, a number of other people have started doing work, you know, within 10, 15 kilometers of Springpole. But the center of gravity that we're going to have with Springpole, I think, is going to enable a bigger regional strategy at some point with the leverage to that exploration success. So right. we're watching a lot and we're actually going to get drills turning on Springpole for exploration targets for the first time in a long time. Right. So you've obviously got a lot of cash. You've got all the cash you need and it certainly get you way into the process for feasibility study, possibly get the feasibility study over the line, do you think? Yeah. I think depending on your assumptions about uh, us uh, ultimately potentially turning some of our strategic investments into cash, Right now, our cash plus the value of our strategic investments is about $200 million, right? right? So, you, so you're good. We're, we're okay. We're okay. <laughs> yeah. No one's going to be struggling for, for gas. Right. Um, so talk about the expiration, but in terms of numbers, please, if you don't mind, because you said where you could go, but give people an idea of how active you're going to be. Because, you know, when people hear the word EIS and crikey, it's just it's a very desk driven yeah. process. So are people out there doing exploration? How much more drilling do you think you're going to do? How much, what's your budget for this year? So a budget at Springpole is about 10,000 meters, which will be a combination of um, some infill and metallurgical drilling, because we're going to go through another round of metallurgical optimization. I think there's, you know, there's still opportunity to get the recoveries higher at Springpole. We're excited about that. Um, as some condemnation drilling where, you know, last year we were in an area doing condemnation drilling and stumbled across some pretty interesting geology, which we're now going to go and test this year with some exploration holes, both kind of near the spring pole project and then ultimately scoping a few holes uh, elsewhere in the land package. But we have a massive land, it's 40,000 hectare land package at Springfield, right? There's lots of room for expansion there. Um, but, you know, I think we've prioritized a number of targets, but that call it 10,000 meters. And at Cameron, you know, I think we'll end up, we've set a, a two and a half uh, million dollar budget, but that's probably somewhere between five and 10,000 meters, depending on the holes that we end up drilling and where they are and how deep they are. Um, but I think our priority really is testing a number of the near surface targets, better understand the structure, some real regional geology that may not see drills this year. Um, 
but that's that's kind of the pace of exploration on those two. So I think both of those have amazing leverage to exploration success in a way that you just can't get that leverage in a traditional greenfields exploration. Are you going to get distracted at all? Because you've got a lot of cash there or a lot of cash optionality there. You know, I think there's a real process, well, you know, a lot of desk work and a lot of uh, engineering and a lot of uh, consultancy work. And so it's basically process driven, not necessarily a ton. Of, I mean, 10,000 meters isn't too bad, but it's, you know, you're not going to go nuts on the drilling. You'd still have a lot of cash having accused you of perhaps having too many, too many uh, uh, assets in the portfolio last time around, and you, you've been dealing with that. Now with all of this cash on board, are you, are you having a second think about maybe how you come out this portfolio of yours? No, you know, I, it's, it's afforded us the luxury of doing that. And, uh, you know, I think most importantly, where we've seen the real opportunity is in making the real investments on de-risking Springpool. And that is on bringing, bringing on a team, right? Bringing on uh, Steve and his team who permitted the Hard Rock project. It's in really appropriately trying to resource the work that we're doing with our communities um, and making sure that we have that runway completely funded. Uh, and, you know, interestingly, we had a board meeting yesterday uh, discussing exactly this. And, and fundamentally, the strategy around some of the other opportunities around the portfolio because there are some real opportunities here what we never really talk about we've got a royalty package that today would be as attractive as a number of different royalty companies that have been created you know we got a one percent royalty or two percent royalty on one and a half percent on gold lund that can be bought down to one percent for five million dollars on a project that's you know we're going to see a pretty interesting scoping on it with a uh, you know, line of sight on production. We've got a 2% royalty on Pickle Crow that can be bought down to 1% for two and a half million US. But these are million ounce deposits in great jurisdictions that people are spending tens of millions of dollars advancing. And we get zero value for these royalties, but I think they provide not just optionality, but also you know, some real value optionality for the shareholders. But like the way that we look at each of these other opportunities is it's gotta kind of be self-funding, right? Like if we were going to go do something with another asset in the portfolio, we need, need, need to make sure always that we have the line of sight on the long-term game to keep our spring pole process moving forward through the EA and getting to that finish line. That is the absolute, absolute priority. Essentially, when you talk about the, the royalty, uh, the, I mean, it's kind of Great Bear did that. They kind of spun, spun, spun that out of the company for the benefit of the shareholders. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, Gold Mining's doing it too with their royalty yeah. company and kind of finding it's, it's a very similar thing. I think we have some very attractive royalties on that. So Interesting. Interesting times. Hey, well, look, um, Dan, good to catch up with you. Long time. We Great should speak more regularly, you though, yeah, yeah. because you're going to be a busy, busy boy this year, for sure. We'd love to see. I, think, I like what you did last year. I um, want, want to see if you're hitting all of those deliverables this year as well. So come back on soon. Pick Great. up the phone, okay? Yeah, we will do. Absolutely. Lots going on in the in the first quarter and into Q2. Uh, you know, lots of very important catalysts. This was a really important one today in declaring reserves and scoping the project but uh you know we've got some really interesting news coming out pickle crow really interesting news coming out uh, gold lund goliath coming out with a pea and 
sometime in the in the near future. So yeah, I think we're going to have a bit more shape on the portfolio and hopefully be able to demonstrate some great progress at Springfall. Beautiful. Appreciate your time, Dan. Thanks. Awesome. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.